Um, hi, I'm Megan Sullivan, and welcome back to the Pastry Yards podcast. This week, we are discussing food trends. We have Chef Matheny, Chef Legal, and Chef Schick with us today. Um, if you guys like to introduce yourselves and tell us a little fun fact about you guys. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm Chef Matheny. Um, I've been with Jay Wu since 2016. I'm an assistant professor and um, main industry uh, I've been in for the last uh, 15 years was chocolate and uh, competition showpiece bonbons. Um, and I'm here to talk about industry trends. All right. And I'm Chef Schick. I've been at JWU since uh, 2015. And I was a student there as well. And my main sector of the industry is plated desserts. It's something I'm super passionate about and where I spent the bulk of my career uh, before I came to Johnson & Wales. So that's really the area I tend to stick to, but I also really love making ice cream. That's also, and I love eating ice cream and donuts. So. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Chef Legal, and I've been working at Johnson & Wales since 2010. And prior to that, I was in the hotel industry. And so I have an affinity towards entremets, pighettos, buffet setups, and stuff like that. And I am not trendy, so I don't really know why I'm here, but that's cool. I'm going to learn something. (laughs) Um, All right. Um, I guess a good one um, to start off with was how plated desserts have changed so much. And you can especially see them on Instagram a lot these days. and how the designs have changed um, over the past few years, even. Yeah, so I'll start, and then you guys can you guys can chip in. Um, so, yeah, I think we are so lucky to have something like Instagram available to help shape our our industry in the plated desserts world and in the industry in general. Because what I'm what I'm seeing as a trend currently is we're kind of going back to the classics. So plated desserts started, if you think years ago, like let's just say in the eighties, they really started as large portion, um, large batch pieces. Like it was like a whole 25 layer chocolate cake and you would get this huge slice of it. And they were super, let's just say in the eighties, they really started as large portion, um, large batch pieces. Like it was like a whole 25 layer chocolate cake and you would get this huge slice of it and they were super large these portions were very large and then we started to move into um, more in the 90s we started to see smaller portions Um, we were seeing a lot of like low fat trends in the 90s as well Um, but individual portions things started to become a little bit smaller it was like a personal size like apple crisp and then you hit the 2000s and things really became like unmolded so now now we're talking like instead of a whole cheesecake with a graham cracker uh crust we're talking like cheesecake that maybe doesn't have a crust and it's free form on the plate or it's something that's piped and even now we're see we're seeing that as well and there was this small uh and i think it's still there a little bit but a few years ago there was this small trend of super deconstructed desserts and super um like organic, natural, broken splatter, like the Alinea table style dessert where it was just everywhere and everything. And there was no barriers and everything was so crazy. And now what I'm seeing is that we're really kind of reeling it back in and we're seeing a lot of nods to classics. We're seeing like pate and Vacherin and Gatosin Honoré, things like that, really paying like a 
a huge playing a huge role in influencing our desserts is really taking classics and making them more modern but still keeping them as as mm, as classic as possible but while putting our twist on it if that makes sense so that's kind of what I'm seeing I'm also seeing more like streamlined plates and less of that Alinea crazy everywhere style things are definitely getting more streamlined they're coming back in and I feel this way with trends in general they just like I mean look at things like scrunchies right like everything comes back everything that's old is always new again trends are always changing and like I said at the beginning we have Instagram as this awesome tool to really help to influence what is going to be popular who knows what the next like Instagram trend that's going to take off is is going to be really so that's kind of like what I'm seeing and um and thinking about the plate of dessert world do you guys have anything to add on that I feel like when I was in the industry and I was doing plates a lot, it was very, like, everything was very constructed. Like, I felt like it was always, like, it was always, like, a constructed dessert, and then it so it was sort of, sort of, like, whole in and of itself, and then you would just kind of, like, put that on the plate with maybe some sauce, some fruit, whatever, and then there would always be, like, a scoop of sorbet or ice cream, like, and, and I feel like it never even mattered what the dessert was. You had to have a frozen component, while as I feel like now people are sort of straying away from it and they're making more intrinsical, like specific decisions based on flavor and based on like textures and like the hot, cold, like, you know, contrasts. So I really like that because I really think that that makes more sense in general. And I like that restaurants are doing kind of what they want to do with their plated desserts. And they're not like conforming to any one specific style. I just remember for a long time, everything had to have like this massive chocolate garnish on it and it was like it didn't really make sense or like everything had a mint sprig you know like i remember that when i was a student oh, man. and it yeah. was like why why would you do that so i think that you know inevitably now things are such they're they're more well thought out and i think flavor becomes this most important aspect of plated desserts and i think that that's good because clearly that's what you're you know you want everything to taste good and if i could take like what chef schick says about some of the older trends coming back like vacheron and stuff like that uh look at pavlova pavlova has all of a sudden become this amazing like petit gâteau that you see everywhere everyone's making pavlova and i just kind of laugh because i'm like oh my gosh like 10 years ago when I was in the industry trying to come up with like trendy desserts, my husband was there saying, make a pavlova. And I was like, are you kidding me? Why would I make pavlova? That's from 1982, you know, or whatever. But now it's like super trendy. So, so you're right. Everything comes around circle again. It's, it's so funny. And sorry, Maura, I'm going to just jump in real quick is, um, what's so funny is you talked about flavor and I immediately went to presentation and how that's changed, but you're so right about flavor and how, I mean, I live in a sweet, savory hybrid world of desserts, but I feel like people are pushing the envelope with flavor more now than they would have years ago because the thought of doing anything out of the ordinary, people would be immediately turned off it was if it wasn't chocolate or caramel or raspberry. And I think people are definitely being more adventurous and willing to try more new things now because they're trendy. Like, like look at like matcha head, it's like, it's day a few years ago like the matcha latte like blew up and it was matcha everything and personally I don't like matcha but Me that's either. a great opportunity to like do matcha everything and people would be like "Ooh, it's green and it's trendy yeah. or pumpkin spice 
pumpkin. <laughs> no, uh-uh. I tried a pumpkin spice latte the other day by accident, and I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chef McQueen, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I, I love hearing what you guys have to say, first of all. <laughs> it's exciting. And to put my, my spin on it, when I was in fine dining, it was um, 2000 and early 2000s. And I can say that um, I found the biggest uh, barriers to be the restaurant you were in. So, I mean, I know Chef Legal could probably uh, relate to this too. If you're in a large hotel that has four or five different restaurants, you're going to see a different style depending on the star and diamond rating of that restaurant. So I know when I was in fine dining, I did a five star five diamond and then um, a four star five diamond restaurant side by side. And so I was serving two menus at once and the five star five diamond dining room was run. The chef there was trained by Elaine Ducasse. And at the time that was, I mean, and he still is really the pinnacle. Um, and he had a lot of the savory chef, had a lot of say over the fine dining desserts, which was wonderful and much more up Chef Schick's alley because we had uh, pastry brain and then this amazing savory brain creating the desserts together. So it was a pretty wild um, experience and one of my favorite um, times in the industry for me. Um, and then I would have the giant liquid center chocolate cake with the huge piece of chocolate on top and the huge scoop of, not quenelle, scoop of raspberry sorbet or whatever on type of some kind of crunch. So you'd like huck a crunch on the, on the plate, throw the big scoop of ice cream on top and huge portions would go out to the grill room, which was the um, four star restaurant. And then the fine dining, I would have like 70 different things on the plate and they all had to be layered a la minute and with tweezers and different tools and then heating and chilling and freezing and perfect quenelles that were done by Paco Jets, like instantly. So you, you know, soften the ice cream and, and instantly scoop just the portion you needed at the time. So the ice cream was almost churned to order. Um, so that was back in 2000 and I was doing desserts that were very similar to what we're going on today just because of the mix of artistry and the high level thinking that came from this French chef that I worked with. Um, but it was neat to see the 80s style giant portion and just huck it on the plate and I expect that to be apple and vanilla and this to be chocolate and raspberry and that was it. There wasn't any more complexity to that going out of the same window in the same station as the you know absinthe jelly with the confit strawberry or the truffle ice cream and souffle um, with sesame twills and it, it all was happening in the 2000s too. Um, but I agree that nowadays there is so much more focus put on texture and color and composition and flavor altogether. People are much more conscious of all of that. Then you get nutrition and allergens and everything thrown in there nowadays. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you guys would like, it'd be a great time to switch over to our another um, trend that's going along, going around. And right now, hybrid foods are a huge thing. If you think about the brookie or a cronut or even a sushi donut, which is culinary, but still there's all sorts of different hybrid foods and your thoughts and opinions about some of those. If you have a favorite or a least favorite hybrid food that's out there right now. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I'm drawing a big blank on that. Maybe, maybe that. I'm not as trendy as, you know, <laughs> as, I as I should be. <laughs> there's, there's I know, right? I think the cronut's pretty cool, but I can't say I've ever eaten one. I have. They're good. And, um, They're good. I mean, I don't know if Dominique Ansel listens to 
this podcast yeah. but um I'm sure he does <laughs> but it was like it was just okay I've had them a couple of times and um I don't know they always look awesome but I I've been told I had a student who used to work there and I've been told you have to get them like early in the morning when they're almost fresh and every time I've gotten them it's been like right before closing because it's right before I'm leaving New York City and I have to get what I have to I have to and uh so I just felt like they're okay but um I have never had a brookie, so I can't comment on that. Um, I mean, just in general, like you see, like just different crazy things that are going on. There's different like waffly cake cones that yeah, are with yeah. all sorts. I of feel cakes. like those are fads more than trends. I feel yeah. like they have their moment, their little splash, and then they kind of like fizzle out. And I don't know that. You know, like a lot of things that are fads start as, or not a, a lot of things that are trends start as fads. So it's worth pursuing. You know what I mean? Like it's worth pursuing that weird angle. And I think chefs out there are just looking. I mean, so many of us we're just we're looking for something different that's going to put our our name out there. And so all of these people that create these interesting different combinations are you know, they're, they're looking for their 15 minutes of fame, or they're looking for something that's going to sell so that they can make money. And I hate to say it, it's, it's, it's a lot about money, unfortunately, but um, it was also about just trying new things. And I think that that's what though, to me, that's what those represent is like someone going, huh, let me put these two together and see what happens. You know, the same way they've slapped a piece of peanut butter and jelly in the sandwich and said, wow, you know? <laughs> so I think that that's kind of where that stems from. And then just our overall, as pastry chefs, I think so many of us just really want to try something new and be original, so. I think I think you nailed it there. I think it's someone mm -hmm. trying to look for their, their cronut fame. Mm -hmm. uh, like what's going to be the next thing that's going to take off that's going to propel their career and I, I yeah I think you I think you hit it on the head yeah with that. I just think about like modern patishu and I think like well that was never a thing before and then now all of a sudden someone put like some sort of sable dough on top of a piece of patishu once and it was like boom you know everyone in the world's doing it so it's just really interesting you know like what is going to sell and what's going to catch on and what's not going to catch on and I don't mm -hmm. think any of us can really predict that I wish I could because then yeah. I would be a billionaire but <laughs> um, so right now a huge thing is farm to table you see it everywhere M lots of restaurants are farm to table um what are you guys' thoughts and opinions on on that can I ask a question about that yeah maybe chef Shik can define farm to table for us in the most realistic sense because I think that it's almost like the word organic people can use it but they don't actually mean it and there's even like seed to table. There's people yeah. that run farms that then run markets and then run restaurants. So they even grow the stuff from nothing. I mean, I think that Dan Barber at um, Blue Hill at Stone Barn was really the first person that actually like made farm to table trendy, right? He literally has his own farm and he's creating his own hybrid foods and he's using them directly from his farm his own farm to his own table at his restaurant. But I think that not everyone, especially in a city sense, has that ability to have their own farm. So to me, a broader sense of the words farm to table is that you're using local farms, using local producers, local purveyors, stuff that's, stuff that's made within a local radius. And that's, that's what the bulk of your 
products are that you are utilizing. And you can say, this is from this farm and this is from this farm. And I think listing that on your menu can be a huge selling point and can increase the value of your of your dessert or your entree or your price points in general by being able to say like, oh, this was at a farm that's 15 miles away because that's actually pretty close in general when you think about, you know, where how much land you need for farm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that helps Chef Legal. I think it does. No, I think that's true because I, I think, you know, like in the, in the literal sense, farm to table doesn't seem feasible to me, right. you know, for most places. So I think using that term is, is, I'd want to say it's uh, misleading, but as long as I feel like it's, again, it's like the word organic. Like, I feel like if you're going to put that on your menu or you're going to put that on your restaurant, like, I just hope that you have the integrity to actually do it because I think that there's not a lot of proof out there. You know, it's not like someone can go like, oh, I absolutely know that strawberry was grown right down the street, but you can put that on your menu and who's checking up on it. So I think, I think well, I hope is, that, I hope there, that it's, there is the there truth is in menus. Like you, yeah, you can't exactly. lie about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hope not anyway. Cause I feel like, I don't know, maybe I've worked for some pretty shady people. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I feel like I, I, you know, back in my hotel days we used to put valrona on the menu and we didn't use valrona chocolate and i was like this is bad we we shouldn't say this you know but you know of course who am i the cook three that gets paid ten dollars an hour so (laughs) i think that there are a lot of um and my husband would be the the i should have him on this call for this part um there are a lot of restaurants that do own and run their own gardens and, and grow all their own produce and their herbs and their greens. And then, yes, I think beyond that, um, there are ones that work with specific ranchers for the cattle and, you know, for the, you know, anything, even the foie gras. Um, so there are some that are more form, farm to table than others. And then, like Chick said, I, I totally agree. Most of them, it's, it's kind of a coined phrase for um, knowing where everything comes from. They're sourcing everything they can't grow there on site. Um, from someone very local that they've actually visited the establishment, they have a good relationship with them, their menu, they have the ability to flux their menu because of that. So if, you know, something's not available or something's not right, they're going to change it. It's not set in stone. Um, And they're probably the places that have the degustations or the, you know, the set menus when you walk in, you don't have a lot of choice or wiggle room because it's whatever is fresh and in season and they received that day and they kind of roll with it. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a trendy thing to say. I know that there's a place in Florida that is coining the seed to table thing and it's Oaks farm down in Southwest Florida, where it is the, um, the farmer who grows everything for the public's markets and everything in the school systems and everything down there. He just opened a giant market that has restaurants and a bakery and it's everything he grows. So it's, he's not only in control of like creating these things and ranching them and everything, but they, then he has the people making the product from it and serving it in the market. So I think it's a great trend knowing where your stuff comes from. I mean, there's a lot to be said from that. I know I've gotten flats and flats of berries and I'm sure you guys have too. And the vendor changes constantly. It's whatever is the cheapest basically get sourced. And then you get some that are all mold. And then you get some that have strange things in them and others that are full of bugs. And then you get nuts that are full of mobs and it's, it's crazy. So I love that trend. And I hope that becomes a whole real world thing eventually that everyone has very short um shipping margins and everything comes from you know very close by and you know what if if tomatoes aren't in season they're not going to be on the menu you know that's just the way it goes so you get the freshest product yeah absolutely um so another one to spin off of that is the 
superfoods and uh, like everybody wants superfoods in their desserts and what they eat in general like avocados um and all that i don't know I that i the, have an opinion yeah i think the, <laughs> the broader spectrum of what you're talking about is the health conscious yeah menus you know paleo uh, vegan gluten-free um, yeah, that's a huge, huge thing right now. And I think that that's not going anywhere. That's not, I don't even think that's a trend. I think that's a big shift. Now we've become so much smarter about what these things do to your bodies and what, um, genetically modified foods, where it can be a good thing and where it can be a bad thing and, and what the health effects are now it's been long enough that we're being able to trace things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I know you guys, we talk about it all the time. I mean, even just with our own healths. Some of us cut out certain things and feel better and change our lives because of it. So I loved way back when in Boston, Jamie, I don't know if this is our um, chef stick. Sorry. I don't know if this is a thing still in Boston. There was a restaurant called the grasshopper there. That was an all vegan Chinese food restaurant. And when I was in high school and college, when every time I'd go to Boston, I'd go there and it was just this awesome, they were producing veggie proteins way back. This was in the nineties. Um, veggie protein alternatives and sauces. And it was all the stuff you'd get at a normal Chinese restaurant, but everything was vegan. And it was so fascinating to know that everything you were eating was just automatically vegan and you couldn't tell at all. So I know this isn't a new thing, but they're perfecting it now. Yeah, that sounds awesome. But I will say in the nineties, I didn't even know what the word vegan meant. Like, <laughs> and and I haven't I haven't unfortunately lived down here or fortunately I haven't lived down here long enough to be familiar with that. Uh, so yeah, I kind of I kind of don't have an opinion, but I on them. But I will say that um, we can't forget that even things like blueberries and pomegranates are superfoods. So while they might not fall into your trendy superfood category, those things are actually superfood. They are packed fill packed full of nutrients and really great ingredients um, for your health. So it's superfood is, while I think the superfood word is super trendy, uh, I think desserts can have more of that, like Chef Matheny was saying, more of that health conscious uh, idea behind them. Like just utilizing um, something like a rice pudding, for instance, that has no sugar added to it. And people who are looking to cut out sugar on their diets that something that might appeal to them or like the keto diet like I think more like gearing towards specific health conscious diets but I if someone can make kale in a dessert because I don't mind kale but if they can make that taste delicious mm-hmm. it would intrigue me I would I would have to taste that we got cauliflower pizza now and, oh I know you know it's it's pretty cool I, I fully embrace all of it if you can now, make it if taste good if we're talking vegetables and desserts, that's a whole nother topic. And I'm fully on board with vegetables and desserts in all sorts of ways from like mushrooms to parsnips to zucchini to carrots. Like I can get on board with all of that. I'm such a traditionalist. <laughs> I am so boring. I'm like, give me my chocolate and my lemon and I am good. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, those, are the, those are the flavors that excite me though. Like when I go to an ice cream shop, if, mm-hmm. if all they have is the normal ones, I'm usually like, Meh, no, I don't yeah, really so need them. I just but... look for peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I look for, okay, what's the weirdest one? What's the most interesting sounding? And what's the most out there? That's usually the one I want to try. That's because cool though. 
yeah I don't know I'm I'm drawn to that and like even with like my donut flavors as much as I love an old-fashioned uh, unglazed plain old-fashioned donut if they're doing something really unique and really interesting like those are the ones I want to try in addition to my plain old-fashioned donut but yeah. I want to try like in the, addition <laughs> yeah the it's so funny. yeah and, and I feel like I'm kind of in the between of you two because I didn't realize Chef Legal, you were so traditional with your flavor profiles and I, I knew that Chef I, Chick I think it's, is very I think it's um, just I think it's it's my Bostonian speaking like and I'm not even from Boston but I worked for 15 years in Boston where nobody really well I shouldn't say nobody I should say in the hotels that I worked at people were like do not put weird things in my dessert and so I just got used to like not putting weird things in dessert or not weird things but like savory ingredients so I think the farthest I ever got was like basil or like sage or something like that and so it's just sort of like it's been ingrained in me and and I didn't hate it so I was okay you know like it didn't bother me all that much I think if Chef Chick had my job way back when she would have wanted to like poke her eyes out because people were not very adventurous but I guess my creative outlet is a different creative outlet than Chef Chick. Chef Chick's creative outlet is, at least in my opinion, the way I see your work is flavor and like trying those types of like exciting things. My creative outlet is like a more visual outlet. Like it's still flavor and I like to combine, you know, flavors, but I think I'm still so traditionalist that I'm more interested in like, well, how shiny can I get that glaze? How perfect can I get that shoe? And like, what is that going to look like? So, cause I don't know, that's just where I live, you know? That's, that's really interesting. And I can, I can see that I can see you perfecting the technique, like going really hard on the technique of the glaze of the perfect shoe. And where I, of course, think technique is super important. You're right. I, I'm like, this is a flavor. Yeah, exactly. It's like this shoe isn't perfect, but it's delicious and it looks beautiful. And I'm going to put something delicious inside it. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we can move on to I, I don't know, you guys have heard um, the cannabis infusion and how cannabis has become a huge thing and incorporating that into food, like every food out there. And the school is actually creating a program or has created a cannabis program. And just what your guys' thoughts and opinions about that were. I think it's awesome. I mean, that's just me. Um, I think it's so awesome. I, I was psyched when I found out about the entrepreneurship degree um, I'm psyched that it's being embraced. I think it's a really, really cool thing to kind of add another dimension into everything we do. Um, I have a really good friend who does, works a ton with CBD in his Bean to Bar chocolate business and all of his products um, and is just creating this whole other level to confectionery and products. And um, there's a whole other level of legal to it, there's a whole other level of marketing and, um, you know, like dealing with alcohol almost, um, certain ages and restrictions. And I don't know, I think it's an exciting way to shake everything up and add this whole new aspect to our business and food and experience and medicine and everything. So I'm, I'm super excited to see what happens in the next, you know, five to 10 years and where this goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I agree. I think it's awesome that Johnson Wales is um, in recognizing that that's going to be a leading industry and hopping on board with that. And hopefully, we'll be able to to see some of that in our in our uh, like R and D degree and what you can do with it there. And 
uh, like Chef Matheny said, I also know people who are working in that sector of the industry and doing some really cool, innovative things. And um, even in the in the other sector of this whole topic, um, they're doing stuff in that area too. But that area just because it, like talking to them about it, you realize what the the real science is. It's very science backed. It's not just like making a you know, funny brownie. It's like really, really <laughs> science backed yeah. and um, how, how everything reacts and the amounts. And it's, it's crazy talking to them. You just realize that it's not, it's not as basic as you, as you think it is. Like there's yeah. tons of research and R and D that goes into making stuff like that. Yeah. Chef Legal. Oh, sorry. Oh, I know I nothing. Go ahead, Go ahead Chef McKinney, <laughs> fill in for me. Oh. I don't know much. <laughs> no, I had a really funny, I was just springboarding off of what uh, Chef Schick said. I had a conversation with Chef Moscovich about this um, a few days ago. Um, again, I was just saying how excited I was about the entrepreneurship degree coming in. I was hoping it became a, a bigger aspect of what CFIT's all about because we are food innovation and technology. That's what we are all super excited to push ourselves towards and embrace all these amazing things that are happening in our industry and expanding and blowing out the walls of what food innovation is, um, even into agriculture. But uh, we were talking about the funny thing that Chef Moscovich said, and it's so true, is before it was this, it was just enough to have cannabis or CBD in the brownie. Like, that was, that was the thing, like, guess what this brownie has in it? And that was the, like the height of the expectation was I'm going to eat a brownie that has cannabis in it. And that was it. But now he's saying the cool thing about this is now it's going to be, okay, this brownie has it incorporated, but it has to be the best brownie possible on top of that. It's no longer going to be good enough that it just has this additional ingredient. You also have to have a, you know, that cannabis brownie is better than this one or this is the best one so far or they found a way to put it in so there's no bitterness or there's no you know this or even the feeling of it they found a way to refine it so that they now the experience is different there's a whole bar now going to be raised past the here's a funny brownie you know like, yeah. or here's the cannabis brownie oh no 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 there's going to be 20 million of them and which one's going to be the best and who's going to master that as a pastry or as a bakery or as a sauce or as a confection or whatever it is. I love the fact that now there's going to be so much competition in it. That Sounds like we're going to aim for the gray goose level, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't want the yeah, absolute to Ciroc, you know, like there's going to be, there's going to be levels in there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so we can end with one last um, trend and that is gluten-free and vegan. I know we already touched about vegan just a little bit, um, but just really gluten-free with different dietary restrictions and vegan, that's just become such a massive lifestyle, not lifestyle trend for so many, but your guys' opinions are that and different products you think are amazing that they can make that gluten-free or they can make it vegan? I think gluten-free is for pastry, for desserts. I think it's doable almost to the point where people wouldn't know, you know, I mean, bread is one thing, but like desserts and like, you know, plated desserts or, you know, entremet or whatever, I think you could do it pretty well. I mean, I've, I've eaten gluten-free cakes and cookies and pies and things that, you would never know you would never and it's just a matter of refining that technique of 
of developing a, a blend of gluten-free flour that is going to mimic what you need for that particular dessert. And so there's no like one size fits all approach. I do not really enjoy those cup for cup type um, flours because they really, they are a little bit too all purpose. So they don't always fit for your needs. Sometimes they do, but, um, but vegan is a whole nother ball game in my world, especially in my world, because I, I deal for my primarily with, sorry, my cat just clawed me, ouch. <laughs> um, primarily with, uh, foods that are stabilized by gelatin and gelatin has such unique properties as a hydrocolloid that other other hydrocolloids just cannot replicate like easily you know sometimes depending on the use it's not as hard but i mean mousse is just not something you can make without gelatin and have the same result and have the exact same result so i think people who are going to be uh looking for vegan desserts or trying to accomplish vegan desserts really need to remember what you know like i think that it's important to remember that you're never going to have the exact same thing i think you can put a chocolate cake and a gluten-free chocolate cake together and say hey you know these are pretty similar and and you can probably swap them one for one in some cases and be fine but there's probably no way to swap a raspberry mousse and a vegan raspberry mousse and come up with something that's relative like comparable so i think whoever's working vegan desserts they have to set their own trends they have to set their own desserts they have to make up their own versions of things that aren't necessarily going to try to replace standardized mm -hmm. recipes i mean there's always like certain ways like i think you can do chocolate mousse relatively well um but i do think that it's it's pretty hard to do pretty hard and i think what we should be doing at johnson was is we should be touching more on that uh the nuance of of how to go about creating vegan desserts i'm kind of excited because i'm teaching the plated desserts class now and we're actually going to do one towards the end and i'm look, looking forward to just sort of navigating that sort of little rocky waters that I've never really navigated before. But I think that it's something that I think just in general, people assume that you can make anything vegan. And I don't really think that's true. <laughs> I will, um, I'll kind of piggyback off of what Chef Legal was saying. And I'm just gonna go back to the gluten free thing. And um, Chef, you were saying that you don't really love the cup for cup thing. And what's really interesting is I was having this conversation the other day, um, because we are in a gluten free section in my class currently. And one thing that, okay, I totally agree with you. Let me start, let me back up. I totally agree with you that gluten-free, you could make something gluten-free and someone who is gluten-full wouldn't know the difference, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't necessarily be able to tell or they wouldn't say, oh, this is like off. Because if you think about it, like flourless chocolate cake is generally fudgy and delicious and people love it. And there's so many things that are naturally just gluten-free, like ice cream and sorbet and mousses that, and, and they're wonderful. They're delicious. So the, gluten-free is a little bit easier in that sense. But for me, the excitement in gluten-free comes when I can modify something without relying on gluten-free cup for cup or gluten-free all-purpose flours. And for me, that's, that's where I like, I like the challenge um, of trying something and having it fail and figuring out why and making it work. But I also, I also and I'm very strange, but I also like the challenge of trying to do it without using uncommon ingredients. So it's like, can I take this twill recipe that has flour in it? And can I just sub the full amount for like cocoa powder or cocoa powder 
cornstarch mix because those are general everyday ingredients without having to buy all of the different gluten-free flours to make my own gluten-free flour blend and then xanthan gum, which oddly I, I do have at my house because um, my husband uses it for hot sauce. But mm -hmm. Uh, without having to go out of my way to find things that are a little bit more specialty, like to get rice flour or to get other types of flours, tapioca starch, and then xanthan gum to try to mimic my own. I like the challenge of how can I do this? Can I grind up quinoa and make quinoa flour? Can I grind up um, oats and make oat flour? Can I sub in cocoa powder? Can I sub in something else to give the structure that's lacking the flour? Um, I like, I like that challenge of it. And it's not always successful. It is 90% a disaster when I do that stuff, but that's, that's what I like. And I find the challenge and how can I create this without using weird quote unquote stuff, which they're becoming more common. So they're not actually that uncommon. Like you yeah, can get xanthan gum at the grocery store now, but, um, and then on the, the same vegan front, I do find that challenging, but also there's so many things in our pastry world that are vegan. Again, things like sorbet, as long as the person is okay with traditional granulated sugar or making a, a sorbet from specific vegan sugar. Uh, very, very easy to do and very little modifications. And being able to know that you can do things with sorbet, most sauces are gonna be um, vegan. And then you're just, then you just have that small challenge of like a main item where whether it's a, a vegan chocolate cake or something. And a lot of times in the restaurant I worked at, I would have a vegan chocolate cake in the freezer. So when I had a vegan come in, I could pull that out and compose something really easily with some of my components on the station that were already vegan. So I was still making them something special to be able to offer them more than just fruit. A fruit plate. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I just would always have that stashed back there. I, um, I love the cup for cup. Uh, you know, um, Thomas Keller developed uh, King Arthur flour. I think it's fantastic. I keep it in my house, but I, I, I think you guys are amazing <laughs> for all of the, the passion and the vigor for wanting to find a way to do it with the stuff you have there. And that level of intelligence and problem solving is, is amazing. Um, to think like, how can I do this with a ground hazelnut instead of using a wheat based flour, which is a hundred percent, you know, like we can use in, um, French macarons or coconut macarons, you can use, you know, a coconut flour instead of a, um, AP flour just to make the same thing, but just make it gluten-free. There are ways to think smarter about why am I using the flour? Is it really necessary? Can I use a cornstarch rather than a cake flour to thicken this, whatever, um, boiled custard? Um, I think my, my whole twist on it, because you guys said pretty much everything, um, was that I feel like vegan and gluten-free and all of these, um, you know, paleo or, or uh, dairy-free and all these things need to become accepted and commonplace. And they need to become part of the foundation of the education that we offer so that it doesn't become this very um, insensitive and ignorant response. When one of your customers says, you know, I'm vegan, you don't do this. You don't have the staff that does the eye roll or the hot for like, you know, oh God, here comes a vegetarian or a vegan, like just give them some greens, you know, it, it like so many things that we're insensitive of and we're trying to get better with in this world right now. I feel like it needs to be accepted and responded to intelligently 
and respectfully. So if someone in your, your um, front of the house in your pastry shop, a customer walks in and says, what do you have that's vegan? You're not just going to go that one chocolate bar right there. There's going to be options and you can intelligently respond. You have to train your staff that way and your kitchen staff that way. And we have to educate them as, as um, culinary and pastry in front of the house that when people ask those questions, it, it's a personal thing. And you have to be able to say, absolutely, um, you know, let me go get the answer if I don't have it. Or you can respond immediately. We have all of these things that are corn-based and this one has, you know, veggie stock and none of these things, you know, or nut-free. You, you have to respect these things. And I just feel like it's um, like the CBD and, and, and evolving our program. If we start educating all of our students with this as a very accepted and commonplace thing, you're going to have a bunch of people that need it this way, this way, this way. This is how we change our recipes to be that. And this is what it means. So they don't say like, uh, Chef Schick, you said if they're okay with granulated sugar. I bet a lot of people didn't understand what that meant. You know, why would sugar not be vegan? Well, there is sugar isn't necessarily vegan if they're talking about impact on living species, if they're talking about bugs or shellac when they cover um, panned items that shine. There's bugs that get harvested into that shellac when they rip the bark off of the tree, you know, so there are just uh, that whole outbreak at Starbucks with the color in the, the strawberry smoothies that were all vegan that turned out they were coming from beetles, like <laughs> Peruvian beetles, that the color was derived from insects. So none of them were vegan. And this had been years that Starbucks was using this dye in the strawberry smoothies. So um, yeah, I think just- Note to self, don't get a strawberry <laughs> smoothie at no, Starbucks. Are you kidding? Can you imagine the, the repercussions on that from that? I just, I just think that's kind of gross, but it, I don't know. I'm sure I've eaten oh, worse. <laughs> but again, it, it, it's, it's being aware because yeah. they didn't care. It was a color well, they needed, but no one took that step I to think, say like, hey, where's the color coming from? I think it's interesting that you said nut, like nut free. Cause I think that that for a long time, like was a thing like, oh my gosh, it it's has to be nut free. It has to be nut free. But now it's it like, now people. it's like you always have something that's nut free. Like it's not even a thought. So if someone says I can't have nuts, you're not, there's no, there's no, um, oh, you know, there's no eye roll. There's nothing. It's like, okay, that's a health concern. So vegan, vegetarian, uh, gluten-free, all of that has to fall under the same category. We have to treat it the same way. Like this is, you know, and then, I do get aggravated when people tell me they have an allergy, but they don't really have an allergy. They just don't like it, I think. But I understand their point because people get like eye rolly about it. Like chefs are like, oh, whatever. They don't want cilantro, like, ugh, and they just put it on anyway, you know? <laughs> but um, but I think it's important that you're right. Eventually, I think the, the industry has to kind of pivot and they have to, we have to be accepting of all types of dietary restrictions and, um, and come to the point where we'll automatically have at least a few options of everything and not have to wing it like I used to have to do all the time or, um, or like, you know, only have the one option that you have because, you know, restaurant menus are limited. You can only have so much, you know, you can't have like everything in the world. But I do remember at the hotel being asked to do, you know, some like you know, gluten-free or whatever. And, and it was always a struggle because I was like, oh my God, I gotta find something and be scrambling around in my freezer to try to figure something out. But nowadays, I don't think that's an option. There'll be too many requests and it's like, you know, expected of the, the clientele is expecting that service. Mm -hmm. I think we can be better. Yeah. We can be smarter. And I think we're trying, I know the three of us, 
trying really hard to educate our um, students in all of these things to be conscious when they use ingredients of things you can substitute it with. And, and um, I know the school is working really hard to have those science modules in all of the labs that make you fully understand sugars and um, dairies and yeah, cross-contamination and nuts. And, and that was a good point, Chef Legale. It's, if we can make all of it as commonplace as nut allergies are now, people can realize that celiac disease is painful and brutal and it's there. You don't, it's not for you to question. Why, and even if, just, even just the, the personal choice, just the personal choice that you don't want to eat animal products. I think that that's, that's your personal choice. Like, I don't want to wear orange. That's my personal choice. Like no one judges me for that, you know? So I, I feel like it should be just like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you're all judging me because I don't like orange. I don't know. It's my favorite. <laughs> not color. actually true. I have a huge orange coat and I love it. Right, so. <laughs> I'm personally Bravo. offended. All right. I think this is a great place to end. Thank you all so much for coming on to the Pastry Arts podcast. Um, uh, thank you all for listening to follow us at uh, JWU PVD Pack on Instagram for more. Um, and thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Right, bye, everybody. Bye. bye.